We're in Mark chapter 9. We've been studying the gospel of Mark. And so here we go. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that as we try to unpack the truths that it would have for each of us, that you would be the one who speaks, that your words would become my words, your thoughts would become my thoughts, and that for these listeners, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to really listen, and minds to put into action what we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in this series of messages in the study of the Gospel of Mark. We've just called it Walking with Jesus. And, uh, and really, we should be thinking about this not just in the sense of us coming alongside and walking with Jesus, but knowing that Jesus actually walks with us, that there's this beauty in this relationship. It's captured in an old hymn that, uh, that uh, is often sung at funerals called In the Garden. I don't know why it's a funeral hymn, but it often is because I think it becomes an expression of the person's relationship that they had with Jesus. And it, the chorus just goes, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me i am his own right so there's this interaction that we have with jesus when he's walking with us and talking with us and he and he affirms um, our identity as his sons and daughters and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known and this morning, we're going to discover that Jesus walks with us up to the mountaintops and then down into the valley depths as well. And in that whole journey, we're transformed by the power of his love. Well, Mark chapter 9 comes obviously on the heels of Mark chapter 8. And Pastor Quinn ta- spoke to us last week um, about this. And in chapter 8, Jesus was making it clear to his disciples that there was a cost to following him. That, that following Jesus, in fact, means that we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross and follow Jesus. And it was a hard teaching. It was then for the disciples, and it is now for us. 
Because the reality is, is who really wants to deny themselves anything? We want it all. I mean, who wants to pick up a cross, which is just a metaphor for dying to self? And Jesus finished that teaching with these words that are actually the first verse of chapter 9, where he says, Truly I tell you, he's speaking to his disciples, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Just remember that. Some are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. And you're going to see that happens in the verses that we're looking at this morning. Now, I'm pretty confident that this teaching of Jesus left his disciples reeling. Jesus hit them hard with the reality of the coming cross and the necessity of suffering. They were down and discouraged. It wasn't at all what they were expecting. They had completely different expectations. You, you remember when Pastor Ken was speaking last week, it was Peter who got up and declared, you know, when Jesus said, well, who do people say I am? He says, well, you're the Messiah. But then when Jesus started to say, well, you're right, but this is what that means, and the Messiah is going to suffer and be rejected and killed. And Peter says, no, 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 we're not having any of that. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Called him Satan. (laughs) Why? Because he was so far off. He identified him as as the Messiah, yes, but he had a completely different conceptual idea of what that was going to mean. And so, as Jesus goes on and gives him this hard teaching, I suspect that the, the disciples were kind of put off by that, kind of discouraged. And really, what is it going to mean to follow you, Jesus? Isn't that a question that we sometimes ask? I, I suspect that for some of us, if we were truly honest, we would say, you know what? If I didn't believe in Jesus, if I didn't seek to follow him, I think my life would be easier. I wouldn't deal with conviction of sin. I, I wouldn't be faced with, with thinking so much about what other people want because I want to just be my own person and care about myself and all of this talk about loving Jesus so that we can love other people. Following Jesus is hard. And, and if you didn't think following Jesus involved denying yourself or dying to yourself, then maybe you're even a little disillusioned right now. Perhaps you were told that Jesus was going to be the answer to all of your problems and that he wanted you to be healthy and wealthy, and now you're neither. And you're confused. Maybe even a little scared. Maybe if you're really honest, maybe you're even a little angry. I think that's how the disciples were feeling at this moment. This isn't what we signed up for. Friends, I pray that Mark chapter 9 will be a huge encouragement to you today. If you can at all identify with just sometimes the confusion of what it means to follow Jesus and the difficulty that it can be at times. And so the first thing that we see as we dive into this is that Jesus tenderly invites us to the mountaintop. 
It's an invitation to walk with Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 2 that after six days, Jesus invited three of his disciples to come up, up the mountain with him. And what's unique about that is that it was actually uncharacteristic of Mark to put such an exact time stamp on an event right? If you've been tracking with us, we would always say, he used words like immediately, like just and, and, and he just kind of continued on and told the story of Jesus. But to specifically say after six days was quite unique. And if there's one thing that we've learned is that Mark is intentional about what he recorded, and so there has to be significance to the fact that six days is used. And, and it is very purposeful in the sense that he very intentionally is connecting it to, to what had just immediately taken place before it, the previous event. And that's why I already introduced that um, by taking us back to Pastor Quinn's message from last week. You see, Peter there had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, And they understood the Messiah would be the one who would redeem them and deliver them. But they expected a conquering king. Instead, what Jesus said is you're going to get a suffering servant. One who would suffer and be rejected and killed and then rise again after three days. And it messed with their expectations. And as I already said, the disciples were confused and maybe depressed and discouraged. And so Jesus is walking this out in, in relationship with them for the whole next week. And I wonder what the conversations were like that weren't recorded during that time. But there were a lot of questions that were raised. And after six days, Jesus decides that he should take three of them on a little field trip and show them that the kingdom of God has in fact come with power, just not in the way that they expected. And so after six days, he invites them on a journey to the mountaintop. But there's another reason the six days is significant, because there's all sorts of parallels of six days of preparation. It was Moses that was, took six days of preparation before his experience on a mountaintop, on Mount Sinai. You can read about that in Exodus 24 and parts of Exodus chapter 34. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And so as the scene is unfolding, we have Jesus leading Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain. Now I should add that this event in the life of Jesus is recorded in Matthew's and Luke's Gospels. And so I may share a detail that you don't see in the text if you're following along here in Mark. Um, it's probably because I pulled one from one of those other Gospels, or maybe I just made it up, but you'll have to figure out which is which. But Jesus went up the mountain to pray. He was very intentional. And he, he went there with the three of his disciples. He invited them to go along with them. And what's significant about all of this is that throughout the Bible, we see that the mountaintop is this traditional place for special revelation. So there's something significant about the mountaintop experience. And it doesn't get more special than this. Because as they are up there on the mountain, Mark just simply states, there he was transfigured before them. And if you followed along as I was reading, it was this glowing, bright, white light that just radiated from Jesus. And Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all try their best to describe what Jesus looks like in this moment. And so Matthew says this, he says, his face shone like the sun. 
And Luke adds, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And Mark writes, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Isn't that awesome? Three writers, three different descriptions of the same event, and they all give us a little bit of a different perspective. So the sun, bright as the sun, bright as a flash of lightning, as white as bleach could possibly bleach something. And Peter, James, and John, they have front row seats to seeing Jesus in all of his glory. You, like, talk about a mountaintop experience. But this word transfigured, it's, it's not a common word that we would use in our English language. We don't talk about things being transfigured so much. But the Greek word is metamorphothe, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. Okay? Or transformation. And this verb refers to an, an outward change that comes from within. Okay? An outward change that comes from within. And we know that metamorphosis takes place when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Or a maggot that turns into a fly. It's not as nice a picture, but you get the idea. There's a transformation that takes place. And so as one commentator put this scene here with respect to Jesus being transformed, he says this, he says, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. In other words, the glory that was always in the depths of Jesus' being rose to the surface for this one time in his earthly life. So it's, it's like Jesus slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. And so right before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, these witnesses, Jesus is transformed to the time when he was only God, because when he came, he never lost his divinity. So we say that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was fully divine, fully human. It's a mystery, But he was both of these. And in this moment, because the disciples really only saw his humanity. Now, they saw the supernatural things he he did, but they didn't see him for, for who he really was. Remember, Mark is all about establishing who is Jesus. And so now, his disciples have this opportunity to see the veil of his humanity lifted. And they're able to see Jesus shining in all of this radiant glory. You could say they caught a little glimpse of his glory. And to say that this was an impactful experience for the three disciples would be an absolute understatement. They would never, ever forget this. I mean, how could they? You see, later on, perhaps when they were losing hope in a dark world... They would remember this event. They would remember what happened here. And John, then in his gospel, in the opening chapter, he would declare in verse 14, he says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. 
You see that? He's referring to the time that he saw Jesus manifest in all of his glory on this mountaintop as Jesus was transfigured. But look at what he now declares. He is the only Son, and it was the glory of the one and only Son. And so they held on to this experience because it confirmed to them that Jesus truly was the Messiah and that he was the divine Son of God. Well, there's a lot more happening on the mountaintop than just appearing in all of his glory, as if that wasn't enough. Elijah and Moses showed up on the scene as well. And and they're talking with Jesus. So the three of them are having this conversation. Mark's gospel doesn't actually tell us what they're talking about. But Luke tells us that they were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So here we have Jesus, Elijah, and Moses talking about the turning point of Jesus' journey to the cross, which would ultimately be his death. And so there's so much going on here. I mean, why would Moses and Elijah even appear? And one thought is that they they represent two of the key periods in Israelite history. Moses represents the law, the one who brought the Ten Commandments from God. And what did Jesus say about the law? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I actually came to fulfill it. And Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but in order to fulfill them. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. Pastor Quinn, I think it was Isaiah 53 that he he read in its entirety last week to remind us that, that Jesus was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but I can only imagine that if I was there, I would have been completely astonished and left speechless. I love the words in the, in the song we sang this morning, you know, just struck with, just awestruck wonder. That's the experience that I think that, that uh, the disciples had, that we would have if we would have been there. And I think I, at least, would have been completely undone by the very presence and power of the glory of Jesus. Just the absolute purity, the, the, the holiness of the moment. It's just this absolutely amazing scene. And then Peter speaks up. It's like Peter couldn't help himself. Poor guy. He didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. I mean, it was a holy moment. And so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, which is kind of interesting because he was so much more than just a rabbi, and you would think that Peter, who had already earlier declared him as the Messiah, then had some confusion about that, but now in this moment, he should have kind of had a little better idea of what was really going on, but he says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, no doubt. And then he goes, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I mean, what are you thinking, Peter? How to ruin a special moment. I mean, we're, we aren't exactly sure all of what Peter meant. Why did he say that? But, but maybe he thought it was good to have three witnesses. Because if it was just one of them, who really would believe that when they tried to tell the other disciples what actually happened on the mountaintop? And so it's good for us witnesses to be here, he says. And then with the shelters, I, I wonder if maybe Peter was just trying to figure out 
how he could maybe make this moment last just a little bit longer. Because that's what I would do. I mean, a visible manifestation of the glory of Jesus? I'd be good with that. And I would try to experience it as long as I possibly could. What's so great is what Mark put in parentheses in, in, uh, in verse 6. He says this about Peter when Peter spoke up. He says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. I mean, now it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, Peter, in this awestruck moment, he doesn't know what to say. So instead of just being quiet, he blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind. And it's not the only time that we ever see Peter doing that. This, friends, this event didn't just happen. As I said, there's so much more going on here, right? The people involved, the place, the glory. God met Moses and Elijah on mountaintops. Moses experienced the glory of God on Mount Sinai when for six days the glory of the Lord appeared to him in a cloud. And in the Old Testament, a bright shining cloud was a sign and manifestation of the presence of God. It was known as the Shekinah glory. Now, that's not a a biblical word, but it was a word that was used to express the concept of one who dwells. It was used by Jewish rabbis to refer to the personal presence of God. And so that pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night that led Israel in the wilderness, it was a manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God, that God was present in that cloud and in that fire, and he was leading the Israelites. And now, as Jesus and Elijah and Moses, Peter, James, and John, as they stood on this mountaintop, verse 7 a cloud appeared and covered them. It was the Shekinah. It was the physical manifestation of the presence of God. Friends, I know theologically that we believe in a God that I always use three terms very quickly, um, and there's more theological terms in it, but I say that God is everywhere present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Everywhere present, all-knowing, all-powerful. And we have to be so careful about maybe chasing an experience. But I think what this passage says to me, it, it helps me understand that there have been times in my life where I have felt this greater manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Where, where the presence of the Holy Spirit is so real, it's almost palpable, it's tangible. There's this intensity, and it's not a feeling or an emotion. Although, like Peter, an encounter with the presence of the Spirit might frighten us and scare us. But it's just different. And you never know when you might experience that. And if you have, you, you, you likely don't forget it. And sometimes it happens in the simplest way. Somebody's telling you a story about how God is active and working in their lives and maybe telling you about a miraculous turnaround in somebody's life and you go, wow, I just, I just got goosebumps. 
And I am not in any way suggesting that we need to go running around looking for the, for the, for the, the goosebumps. But there is something about the presence of the Holy Spirit, because we believe he's everywhere present, but why does he sometimes seem sort of more present than others? Years ago, um, decades ago, actually, and some of you who are in my generation may remember this, but in the city of Edmonton, there was a gathering at Central Baptist Church on Sunday nights, and, and interestingly enough, it was called Glimpse of Glory. And it was after their evening service. It started about 8 o'clock. And young adults from all over the city packed out the church to, to just worship for about an hour and a half. And so I could see some of you that I know. You're nodding your head. You're like, yeah, I was there. We're old. Um, or older. And, uh, and I just, you know, there, there's something about worship. And I remember in those moments, and it wasn't every Sunday, and it wasn't even maybe that often, but there would be just these times where you just had this incredible sense that you are absolutely standing on holy ground. And the presence and power of God was manifest in a way that wasn't the same when you walked in. But God was already present because he's everywhere present. Turns out what's, what worship does, it's an opportunity for us not to just sing some songs, but it's an interaction with a holy God. When we're singing holy, holy, holy this morning, you know, the, 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 the scriptures say that God inhabits the praises of his people. We should never, ever look at Coming to church is just routine with our hands in our pockets thinking that, okay, let's just get this over with and hopefully the message won't be too long because I can smell brunch getting ready. This will be good. Right? It's just a sense of when we can taste and see that God is good. I'll be honest, I... I struggle in worship a lot of times. You know why? Because I'm so distracted. I'm thinking about, okay, we want to be done by about 20, 25 after this, about this, and oh yeah, what am I going to say when I get up there to do this? This morning, just as I raised my hand, my watch buzzed. Like, what? It's a notification for something that's going to take place three days from now. <laughs> Sometimes we sing the song, Open Up the Heavens. And we should have sung that song. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm looking at Brad and Leanne. Open up the heavens. And the chorus in it just says, show us your glory. Show us. Show us your power. What would happen if that is our prayer? God, that you would just somehow reveal yourself to us in an extraordinary way in a miraculous way. And so that should become a prayer for us in our own lives and the life of our church. And so when we gather for a prayer summit, some of it should be that, God, we just add that you meet with us here. 
that we would know your presence and your power today and that we would trust you with the things that we're praying about. And sometimes it means just getting away by yourself. And, and, and this is why, you know, they refer often to like camp ministry as going to these mountaintop experiences. Why? Because you take kids or even adults out of their, their natural element and away from their, their video games and their cell phones and you put them in, in an environment that is, is geared towards saying, we want you to come and encounter Jesus. And you hear the stories of kids giving their life to Jesus around a campfire. Why? Because the Spirit of God moved on them. And friends, this can happen on a daily basis when we get alone with God and we just take time and we just say, God, I, I'm here again. It's been a dry spell. Because you can go through dry spells and just feeling like you're, oh, you're just, it's just a grind. But don't ever lose hope. Don't ever give up. And just know that Jesus does invite us to the mountaintop. But it's not just for an experience. It's to provide an opportunity for us to affirm our commitment to him and that our hope in him becomes a reality. And so for, for Peter, James, and John, suddenly to see Jesus as this radiant son of God, it confirmed everything for them. And so we deepen our relationship with him on the mountaintop. And then we do that as he instructs us along the journey. i got to move, sorry. So Jesus instructs us along the journey. Mark tells us in the second half of verse 7, he says, A voice came from the cloud. He says, This is my son. This is now God the Father speaking, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, those words may sound familiar because he said almost the same thing at Jesus' baptism. And this was not the disciples' imagination at all. This isn't something they're making up because years later, Peter would write this about this event, Second Peter 1, 16 and 18. And you can note the reference and then read it again later if you like. But he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. Okay? They didn't follow something that was made up. When we told you, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. He's referring to this event on, uh, on this mountain. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You see, Peter did not ever forget the encounter on the mountain. I mean, how could he? And all three Gospels capture this event in the life of Jesus, and they include this command, listen to him. That was the command, listen to him. And so Jesus will instruct us, our role is not just to hear him, but to actually listen to him, which implies that there's obedience, that there's doing, that there's action. Because if we're hearing it, we can say what? It goes in one ear and out the other. But when we're listening, it starts to change the way that we think or the way that we act or the way that we respond. 
And for Peter, James, and John, that meant that they were to listen to what Jesus said about the necessity of his death and their embracing the paradox of the cross. So Jesus had just finished this hard teaching, and now the God the Father says to them, listen to what he said. He's truth, and it's right. And so what did Jesus say? He said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whatever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Friends, we need to listen to all of Jesus' words. We need to listen when he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. We need to listen when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to listen to him when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We need to listen to him when he says, you are the salt of the earth. We need to listen to him when he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, but glorify your Father in heaven. We listen to him when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second he says is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We listen to him when he says that. We listen when he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Are we listening? How do we listen to God? Well, we expose ourselves to Jesus' teaching. We get, we get into the Bible. We, we, we read it. We study it. We meditate it. We memorize it. We find ways to pull away from the noise and the clutter of our lives so that we can worship and pray and we read his word. Friends, it's not rocket science. We say this over and over again. It's really straightforward. But it's not always going to be a mountaintop experience. But the invitation from Jesus is to get alone with him. And in that time and space and in silence and in solitude, we listen for his still, small voice, his quiet whispers. And we trust that he's going to speak to us. And we're going to listen. And we do this even through community when we get to others and get together with others and we're studying his word or somebody comes along and just says, you know, I've been thinking and I don't know if this is true at all, but I just feel like I need to share this with you and it's a word of encouragement. And you're like, how did you know that? Well, God is using that person to bring his truth to your life. Receive it. Well, it seems all good things must come to an end, and you're thinking, when is this message ever going to come to an end? But Mark 8 tells us, sorry, yeah, sorry, Mark chapter 9 and verse 8 tells us, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Suddenly, just as quickly as Jesus was transfigured, the Shekinah was gone. Jesus no longer radiated light. Moses and Elijah had even disappeared. The voice of the Father had gone silent. Just Jesus and his three disciples remained. 
Which leads me to my last point is that Jesus then inspires us in the valley depths. You see, when all is stripped away, when everything is gone in a sense, we come to that place where we only see Jesus. Where we live to worship and to honor him. We love others the way that we should. We give of ourselves in service. We embrace the paradox of the cross. That in dying we live. And as Peter, James, and John, they come down from this mountain, Jesus doesn't stay up on the mountain and send them on their way. Jesus goes with them. And they go down into the valley depths where I want to suggest to you where most, if not all, of or most of life is, is lived out. And it's in that place that Jesus encourages and inspires. You see, the experience on the mountaintop, it stimulated great conversation, but Jesus reminded his disciples and then us that he had called them to confess him as Christ, and then that ultimately involves confessing him as a suffering Messiah, which in turn involves also embracing the suffering that comes from the cross, the suffering that comes from being like him, from living his ethics in a fallen world. And when we live as Christ followers in this secular culture, it's not easy. So what does this mean that we, we live in the, in the depth sometimes? It means that we come to this place in our lives where we appreciate that suffering is often the way that God transforms us. As one writer that Tina likes to read puts it, it's God's curriculum for our lives, suffering is. It means that when we deal with mental health issues, that we, we walk that out with Jesus, that, that we recognize that he is present with us in those anxious moments. It, it means that, that, if, that if we face a difficult marriage, instead of running from it, we press into it believing that God is able to use that experience to change us, to form us. Gary Thomas, who writes about Marriage asks a good question. He says, what if God never intended for marriage to make us happy, but to make us holy? Isn't that a great question? Because if we look at marriage in the context of saying, well, you know, I'm not happy anymore. Therefore, something's gone. But what if we turn around and we said, but it's not about happiness. It's about holiness and about God's transforming us. And so how can I step into this and press into it? You see, when we face harsh realities of life, the tough stuff of life, we walk those things out in the presence of Jesus. We, we're not alone. Because we know that just as he was powerfully present on the mountaintop, he's also present in the valley depths. And what's interesting to note here is that Jesus didn't take his disciples from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. No, in this passage, Jesus leads his disciples into the valley of the ordinary and the routine and the mundane of life. 
And the way of the Christian life is not to somehow move from glory to glory, from experience to experience, although moments of glory and taste of the kingdom of heaven do come our way every now and then, and that's awesome. But the reality is, is sometimes we just have to grind it out. We just have to work it out. We have a person to follow, Jesus. We have needs to meet. We have things to learn. And friends, just know this. Jesus is there in the valley with us, cheering us on, encouraging us, inspiring us, giving us hope when it seems hopeless, bringing comfort when there's grief, because those are the realities of life that we all deal with. And so in closing, I thought of this verse. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he just says this. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Amen? Right? Preach it. But then he continues. And the sharing of his suffering, becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Did you catch that? Becoming like him. Becoming like him. That is the goal of the Christian life. It is the work of transformation that takes place when we walk out this relationship with Jesus. And we do it daily, and we do it consistently, and we just keep at it and realize that this transformation is not instantaneous. It's gradual. It happens over time. And so some of us can be frustrated with like, man, I've been a follower of Jesus for 20 years and I feel like I'm still battling the same issues. Sometimes it just takes time. But being confident of this, that he who began a good work And every single one of us will be faithful to complete it. What's the work? It's the work of transformation. Becoming more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for these truths. I pray, Father, that you would just illuminate the eyes of our heart so that we can see you for who you really are. That we can see you in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, all of your power. If we would just taste and see that you're good. Father, give us that taste. Father, we just surrender ourselves to you and ask that you would do the work of transformation in our lives in a way that we know that we cannot do it on our own, but that it is your power and presence that is active in our lives, bringing about change, bringing about transformation taking what's inside us that results in an outward change 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.